Thank you for reading God's Word to us, Mandy. And it's quite an in-depth little passage we're uh, looking at today. There's a few ways that you can communicate with us, and one of those is in the chat function. Uh, after the service, we have a chat after church, and we would love to know your thoughts on this passage as we go through it in the chat. Um, and we'll be looking at some of those in the chat after church. You can also use uh, slido.com with the hashtag HBSP uh, if you've got any questions. And I will try and answer them at the end of the service. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Um, today, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting from verse 8, I'm going to split this passage up into three sections. The first section is from verse 8 through to the end of verse 13. The second section is from verse 14 through to 18. And then the third section is from 18 to 22, which is the end of the chapter. The first two sections actually help us understand how we should live. And then the last section as difficult as it sounds, will help us understand that we are united with Christ and that we are bought to God and saved through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, we are those who are to live as those who are free. But we must never use this freedom to cover up for evil. As living servants of God, we come before him and say, not my will, but yours be done. And then he sends us back to the very place we have been freed from, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. What we will see today is that ultimately, every human institution, every authority and power have been subjected to Christ. And so this should be a real encouragement for us today as we look at living on the margins of our society and holding fast to the gospel, knowing that ultimately Christ has all power and authority. Let me pray as we examine God's word today. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be part of your family, the church. And I pray that you would help us as we live in this world. Help us to be continually focusing on you, on the way you care for us, on the way that you bless us. And help us today to find encouragement in your word. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So let's begin by reading again verses 8 to 13. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now verse 13 here at the end of this section is a rhetorical question. It asks, who will harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And the answer is that no one should harm you if you are eager to do what is good. That is, if you follow the idea found in Psalm 34, which is written here, if you keep your tongue from evil, if you do not uh, speak deceit, if you turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it, then the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And if, like we looked at last week, if we strive to keep our conduct honorable, being subject to every human institution, and are eager to do good, then we can assume that we will not be harmed. Peter asks, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And as Christians, this may be your experience. Perhaps you are thinking, I've had a good life. My conduct has been seen by those around me, and it has not caused me harm. It has not caused me much grief. I haven't suffered much as a result of my faith. And I want to point out here that Peter is referring to trials or suffering that you might face as a direct result of your faith. As a result of living on the margins as a minority, as a Christian, in the culture or the place that God has sent you back into. Peter is not talking about suffering that we can face in our daily lives, like suffering from a workplace accident or suffering brought about by cancer, or suffering faced when we get the COVID jab and we can't move our arm. Peter is concerned about suffering we experience that is unjust, suffering for righteousness' sake, brought about as we live out our lives, we live out our faith, and hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as you reflect on this sort of suffering, and especially as we live in a Western culture like Australia, it might be difficult for you to identify with this kind of suffering, suffering as a result of your faith. Instead, on your account, on the account of your conduct and the way you live, people, you ask, people may ask you, why do you live the way you do? Why do you honor those around you? Why do you rejoice while others seem to wallow in self-pity? Why do you put others first? And you have taken the opportunity to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you. Maybe you have won those you care about and helped them move from where they once were to where they are now as part of the family of God. 
You've seen the Holy Spirit work in their lives, and it has been a great joy and a blessing for you. Maybe this describes your life. And as a result of your good conduct, no one has harmed you. And Peter actually says this is what it can look like as part of God's family. And in verse 8, it says that as the church, we can have unity of mind. We can have sympathy for each other. We can love each other with a brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. We can turn away from evil. We can stop repaying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. We can bless each other and in return receive blessings. We can obtain a blessing. This is the way the church can operate. This can be the result of living on the margins and holding fast to the gospel. It is a practical way that our church can fulfill its mission to bring glory to God. But, as we see in the next section of the chapter, this is not necessarily what we should expect. This may not be what our lives look like. In fact, in the following verses, Peter wants to remind us that we ought to expect suffering as a result of our faith. And we have seen this time and time again throughout history. And most of us know people that have followed Christ and have followed a life of sacrificial hardship. Like the couple who committed their lives to serving as missionaries, and they went to the middle of Papua New Guinea and spent 25 years translating the New Testament into the people's heart language so that the people could know and love Jesus. They translated the living word of God that has the ability to change people's hearts and the people rejected it. After 25 years of faithfully serving their Lord and Savior, this couple suffered and went home completely devastated. Or it might be like the suffering faced by the family of a daughter who was taken and gang raped by the very people that they've gone to serve. Friends, it is costly to follow Christ. And while we may not suffer exactly like this, we must be prepared that we could. Read with me verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Troubled, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, we don't like to talk about suffering at the best of times. And as we're going through the book of 1 Peter, we see that suffering is a thread woven through the entire book. It's a major theme of this book. Now, I did not want to talk about suffering in every single one of my sermons. So my plan was to actually just leave it all till next week. Leave it till next week. Leave it till next week. But this has been a real challenge for me because it just keeps coming up again and again. And we actually saw it in the very first week in chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And then it's shown up again in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, which say, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. From verse 14 through to the end of chapter 4, the theme of suffering is a really difficult one to skip over. And so we're going to jump into looking at it now, and then we're going to continue looking at it again next week. I would like to start by reading from Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus sees a crowd. He goes up onto a mountain and sits down. His disciples came to him and said, just listen along as I read this to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. At the start of this section in Peter, Peter paraphrases Jesus' words. Look in verse 14, it says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Peter's teaching is exactly in line with what Jesus said on that mountain. 
And he does this because he realizes that Jesus taught it and then he lived it. And he is an example for us to follow. And so Peter says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter knows that suffering is the way of Christ. And knowing that it may be God's will for us to suffer means that we must be prepared for sufferings. We are to prepare our minds for action because people may not see our deeds as good, but as offensive, as judgmental, as being against our society, and as a result, we can expect them to utter all kinds of evil against us and speak against us as evildoers. But as you suffer for doing good, Peter says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, continue to revere Christ as Lord. So, whether we do good and see the results, or whether we do good and suffer for it, we are still blessed. To rephrase a common saying, blessed if you do, blessed if you don't. But how are we blessed if we do, blessed if we don't? What does this look like? Peter does not say here that you will be blessed just like Jesus was blessed on earth. Peter says you will be blessed with a future blessing, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And we see this blessing explained even more in the rest of this chapter. Read with me verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The blessing is that Christ brings us to God. And imagine Christ physically picking you up and bringing you to God. And when he does that... He stands in your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And it's a great image of what Christ has done for us to secure a relationship with God. And Peter puts this here amongst all this talk of good deeds and our good conduct because he knows that we have the ability to boast to think that our salvation is because of something we have done. He knows that we can convince ourselves that our conduct influences our salvation and therefore our blessing. And this is a form of idolatry. Instead, Peter points us directly to Christ. It is because of his suffering and his death, that we are blessed. And now we come to this passage 
verses 18 through to the end of the chapter. And before I begin looking at this section, I would just like to point out that when uh, Steve uh, allocated the sermon series to me, he said to me it would be a great way to ease me into preaching. His words were something like this. I thought I'd give you something easy to start with rather than something difficult like one of the Old Testament passages. But what I've found is that as, as I've been researching this passage and when I've been reading about it, I realized that everyone who writes about this passage is unsure of how to interpret it. And even to the point where Don Carson says that this passage is amongst the most difficult in the entire New Testament to interpret. So thanks, Steve. Thanks for easing me into preaching. There is a lot of views about what this passage means. I'm going to explain what I believe it does not mean so that we don't end up going down the wrong path. And then I'll explain what I believe it is saying and how it fits into the book of 1 Peter. So let's read it again. Read uh, from verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Firstly, what this passage is not talking about. If we read this passage as Peter writing chronologically about Jesus' death through to his resurrection, we will read the passage in this way. Christ was put to death in the flesh. He was made alive in the spirit. And between his death and resurrection, he went and preached about himself to the spirits in prison that is, in hell. Then Christ was raised from the dead and has gone into heaven. Now this becomes problematic because we develop the idea that Christ had to do something or achieve something between his death and resurrection. For example, we can tend to believe that Christ has died, he's gone into hell, and has a three-day battle with the devil. He then preaches to those who have been in hell up to that time. He rescues them out of hell, is raised to life, and ascends. And because he is victorious, it means that our salvation is only effective because of the three-day battle that Jesus had with the devil. Another way to read this passage is that Jesus goes down into hell, 
proclaims his victory to those who formerly did not obey and then either does a victory lap and then leaves again with no result or he affords those in hell who, as the passage says, formerly did not obey God's word in the days of Noah, he affords them a second chance to be saved by proclaiming the good news to them. Both these ideas contradict so much that is found elsewhere in the New Testament. But we, when we read this in a chronological way, they're easy ideas to arrive at. But ultimately what happens, we're jumping to conclusions as to what happens in those three days between Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. And it, these, it just doesn't tell us this in the Bible. Now the main theological problem with these views is that Christ's death was on the cross. His atoning sacrifice for us was done on the cross through his death to bring us to God. And this is exactly what it says in verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And again, we've read it in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. God is the one who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. God is the one who requires the sacrifice. He is the one who will judge impartially according to each one's deeds. But Christ's death, his atoning sacrifice, pays the price. And the devil has no say in it. The devil has no power, no authority over Christ. So if we do not read this chronologically, we must then read it systematically. That is, in light of the point that Peter is trying to make home, bring home here in this letter. We are saved through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us, and we are freed for the Lord's sake to serve every human institution. We may find that we suffer for our faith, and in it all we give glory to God. So in verse 18 it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but a made alive in the spirit. So Christ brought us to God through his death in the flesh, and he was a made alive in the spirit. But before Peter speaks of Christ's resurrection, Peter has something else to say about Christ being in the spirit. And in verse 19, it starts with this, in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah 
while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now to help us understand this passage, I'm going to use a simple example. Just imagine that we are having a conversation, and in this conversation I say to you, my grandmother, who is dead, told me that she was sick of keeping silent and was going to start speaking her mind. What is clear that my grandmother is dead. But you could interpret this statement in two ways. The first way is that you can interpret this as though even though she is dead now, she has somehow spoken to me, that is somehow spiritually spoken to me, and she's told me that she's sick of speaking her mind, and so she's going to start speaking her mind. Most of you who know me would rule this out straight away. You would think this is highly unlikely that I would even say that. Instead, you would understand that I'm referring to a conversation I had with my grandmother while she was still alive. When she said to me, I'm sick of keeping silent, and so I'm going to start speaking my mind. And we can read this passage in the same way. And the phrase, in which, helps us to understand that Peter has stopped his chronology of events. Peter has something to say about Christ being in the Spirit, but it's not at the time of his death, but at the time of Noah. And so what verse 19 is saying, that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits who are in prison now, but Christ proclaimed to them when they were alive which is in the days of Noah. Just as I spoke to my grandmother when she was alive, Peter is saying that Christ, in the Spirit, spoke to them when they were alive. Peter explains that in the Spirit, Christ has spoken in the time of Noah, while the ark is being prepared, while God waits patiently for judgment. And actually, this isn't the first time that Peter has spoken about this. You might remember in chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, Christ's Spirit spoke through the prophets who prophesied. And so Christ's Spirit was in Noah, and through Noah preached to the people of Noah's day. These people then rejected Christ's teaching and subsequently died and face judgment, and are now in hell. And I do not know a better example of God's people living on the margins of their society than at the time of Noah. Noah spent 500 years preparing the ark that would save the world. And as he did, the Spirit of Christ was within him, and preached to those who were watching on. And they thought he was a lunatic. They heard the word of God, but did not receive it. Peter takes us to Noah, because God, in his great saving act, saved a few. It tells us that it's eight persons. And while saving the righteous few, 
God punishes and judges the wicked. But Peter doesn't stop there. He keeps going. And he says that just as Noah and his family were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. For us, baptism is a symbol of our conversion. As we physically are baptized, we make an outward sign for what Christ has done internally. He has caused us to be born again. We have died to sin and we live to righteousness. We have received an undeserved gift from God. The most miraculous thing in life, our greatest blessing, is to be saved through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not to be blessed financially, or with a physical healing, or with a nice house, or a car, or a comfortable life. Our greatest blessing is to be saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. He picks us up and he brings us to God and he presents us to God and through Christ's righteous suffering for us, the unrighteous, God has not only allowed us to live, but he has welcomed us into his family and calls us his own precious possession. This is the blessing that Peter reminds us of. And it should impact every aspect of our lives and how we should live. Because God has blessed us more abundantly than we ever deserve. And then at the end it says, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all subjected to him. And so Peter is confident to say, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not fear this world. Do not fear the suffering you will endure. Do not fear when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on his account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Well, you might like to ask a question on slido.com. You can use the hashtag HBSP. And I'll be back in about 90 seconds to try and answer some of your questions. Thank you.
All right, I've got two questions here. Um, the first question is from Rod, and he says, Tough passage, Matt. Thanks to God for you. Why do we mention then in our creeds as a statement of faith that Christ descended into hell? Now, that is a great question. Um, and the Apostles' Creed, which we often say, we say that here, uh, there's actually two ver- versions of the Apostles' Creed. And one of the versions actually says he descended into hell. And that was as a result of this passage. And there's a couple other passages in the New Testament as well that can be sort of interpreted to mean that Jesus did descend into the depths or into hell as well. And so this came up in the Apostles' Creed. Now, as I mentioned, there's two versions of the Apostles' Creed. One version actually says he descended to the dead. And the, and so this can refer to either him descending down into hell or him descending from above to the earth and actually dying and ending up in the grave. Um, so... The interpretation of this has been discussed. It's actually been taken out of the Apostles' Creed and put back in the Apostles' Creed. People have discussed this quite a lot. Um, And you're going to have to ask Steve why we say this particular creed and why we don't. Um, uh, Not me on that one. I'm going to pass that one to Steve and see if he actually has an answer because I think it's a great conversation to have. Is it appropriate for us to say he descended into hell or not. And one of the things I pointed out in my sermon is that the idea of this battle between the devil and Christ, I don't believe ever actually happened. Now, I don't think it's clear as to exactly what happened between Christ's death and resurrection, but I would say that he did the opposite of that, but he was at the right hand of the Father. Um, There's passages from his... uh, when he was on the cross where he says, today you will be in paradise, he says that to the other thief. Um, And so I think there's a lot more evidence to suggest that he didn't actually physically descend into hell. Um, But that is a great question um, when it comes to this. And and the same uh, for the next question, what did Jesus do then in hell? Did he actually go to hell or not? Um, I don't see any reason, I think, for my theology and the way I think about our atoning sacrifice. It was done for God, not for something to happen in hell. Um, and so I think the, the most common view for this is that he sort of descends into hell and he's, he sort of declares his victory. Um, and I'm okay with that if you think, you know, he does declare his victory, but it doesn't affect our... Um, who we are in Christ, it doesn't affect the fact that Christ's sacrifice was for God, not for um, the devil or anything like that. Uh, Somebody else has mentioned, I've heard it say that hell is separation from God. I've also heard that as well. I think that's a great way to think of hell, Um, But I also think there is a physical hell. There is a place where people end up. Um, And the problem is that people can be separated from God in various ways. It's not the only way that we can be separated from God. But it is a good way also to describe hell. It is separation from God. Um, And I'm going to finish it there. There will be more that come through. 
Um, but if you have any questions, please message us. Please bring them through. I'm sure that Steve would love to have a conversation with you about this, and so would I. Um, so we'd love to chat with you about this. We are going to sing now, so I'm going to hand it over to